you might recall um, a couple of weeks ago uh, hearing a very insightful um, but not so perhaps nutritious tale of Nat's and Kat's young lad uh, getting so excited after hearing he was going to have pizza for breakfast. So excited he started jumping up and down, accidentally so he claimed. Um, So excited he was. Now I'm hoping, Kat, that that level of excitement means that it's a pretty rare occasion that he would have pizza for breakfast. It was a healthy pizza. (laughs) And anyway, no concerns about the nutrition of uh, Nat and Kat's children. But there's another young tale of a young lad, restless as they are at that age, especially when they're sitting in church for a long service and a long sermon. This young lad had been sitting there for a long time and he'd been told by his mum a number of times, be quiet, shh, we're almost done. But he wasn't so easily appeased and halfway through the sermon, out of his own frustration and loud enough for everyone in the church to hear, he cried out, but mum, when are we going to see Jesus? And it was a fair enough question. After all, engraved on the pulpit that the preacher was standing behind, lovely engraving, masterfully done on the wooden pulpit were these words. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Do you know where they're from? From John's Gospel. A bunch of Gentiles had heard about Jesus and they wanted to come and they came to Philip and said, we want to see Jesus. There's a turning point in John's Gospel. There's a shift in the landscape from that point on. The Gentiles come a bit like that. Hey, we want to see this man. And Philip goes to Andrew for a bit of moral support maybe and goes to Jesus and says, there's some people out here that want to see you. And it's at that point that Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And he goes on to say, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Those words, sir, we wish to see Jesus, they're actually written on many a pulpit, particularly in older churches, often on a brass plaque and not for the congregation to see from the front, but actually for the preacher to see. It's sitting on the pulpit right here. Maybe reminding the preacher, maybe hopefully not too often, a reprimand to the preacher, saying, sir, these people you're preaching to, they're not here to see you, they're not here to hear you, they want to see Jesus. It is a good reminder, and as I said, hopefully not too often a reprimand for every preacher. But it's also a reminder and encouragement for all of us, isn't it? Why are you here this morning? What have you come to do? Who have you come to see? Who have you come to hear? Who are you here for? Do we come eager, wanting to hear Jesus? to know him more and to love him more. The one whose name one day will render every knee bow before him and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Two Scottish pastors, it's not the beginning of a joke, um, two Scottish pastors, Alastair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson, uh, both of whom I enjoy to read and listen to, um, 
Each began their formal ministry in Scotland. Uh, they even supported the same soccer team and played on the same golf courses there. Uh, but they both moved to the US um, quite coincidentally in the same year, back in 1983. So that tells you something of their age. Um, wise, godly, faithful men of the word of God. Um, they were asked together to speak at a conference in Tennessee once, and as a result of that conference, they've put together this book, Name Above All Names. It looks at the person and work of Jesus, or as the back of the book explains, it helps us discover seven key attributes of Jesus' life and ministry. Uh, this book, that title, the theme, is going to be the basis of our next preaching series starting this morning. Uh, Nat and myself, together with Phil, are going to be preaching and we'll be using this book to help us prepare, guide us in our reading and preparation. We might even use some of their quotes and even their jokes. Um, you might like to get a copy yourself. I think some people already have when I mentioned it a week or two ago. Um, but as preachers in Scotland, um, they write in the preface of the book that they've often seen those words visible to the preacher and not to the congregation. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's on many a pulpit in the churches in Scotland. And that's their prayer for the readers of their book. That as we read, as we study, and it's my prayer as we go through this series, that we wouldn't simply glean some good stuff from a couple of really good preachers from Scotland, um, or that you'll hear some good stuff for some pretty good local preachers here at Corrie. I'm half Scottish, so I don't know if that counts. Um, but that actually will see more of Jesus that will hear more, not just about him, but from him, and that will learn to love him more and know him more, and that we'd be encouraged to do more than just a 30, 40-minute time on a Sunday morning doing what the writer of Hebrews says encourages, and that is to consider Jesus. So this is our series as we lead up to Easter during a season of Lent. Um, and neither I nor the authors here, um, Sinclair Ferguson or Alastair Begg, they don't claim this is an exhaustive series by any means. But we're going to be looking at some of the titles or attributes of Jesus, beginning this morning with Jesus Christ, the seed of the woman, and then Jesus Christ, the true prophet, the great high priest, the conquering king, Jesus Christ, the son of man, the suffering servant, and finally, Jesus Christ, the lamb on the throne. So that's where we're heading in the next seven weeks. And my prayer, as I said, is that we would see Jesus. So this morning, and you might like to open up to Genesis 3 that we had read for us, this name or role of the name above all names, Jesus that we're looking at, comes from Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. That particular phrase comes, as we heard, uh, Genesis 3.15, at the very beginning. And uh, it actually comes in the midst of God handing down his curses, doesn't it? <laughs> to the serpent, uh, to the woman, and then to the man. We didn't have it all read for us, but we'll be looking at some of that. And uh, Eve, or the serpent, actually is told there's going to be enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman. God's addressing the serpent who's deceived the woman and caused sin to come in to the world. And he says, God's actually going to put enmity between you and the woman, verse 15 of chapter 3, between your offspring and hers. Now, Eve is obviously no lightweight or shrinking violet. At least God doesn't think so, or any woman for that matter. She's the one who's engaged in this war with a serpent. You ever notice that? This enmity is between you, 
and the serpent. Now, she's not alone in that by any means, but she's given the task throughout the ages of enduring that hostility with evil, of being on the receiving end of the serpent's enmity. That's no small thing, is it? As I said, though, she's not alone. And this enmity eventually comes to a head, we're told, between the seed or child or offspring of this woman and that of the serpent. And then that seed is personified. She's going to have a son because it says, He will bruise your head or crush your head, depending on your translation, and you will bruise or crush his heel. War is going to be waged. Generation after generation, offspring after offspring, between the woman and her offspring and between the serpent and his. And there's going to be blood, there's going to be injury, there's wounding and bruising and crushing. But it will end in death and defeat. The seed of the woman, his heel will be bruised, crushed, he will suffer. But he will give the serpent more than just a wounding blow, he will give a fatal blow. He will crush the serpent's head. And that's where we find this first reference to the seed of the woman. And we could actually follow that seed all the way through Scripture. And if we had time this morning, I could take you through many, many a passage. But this morning, <coughs> excuse me, I want to spend a bit of time just here in Genesis 3, a story many of us will know well. Um, but the context of this verse, this phrase, the seed of the woman, we know, as we've just heard read, it comes in the time when the primal couple, they reached out and took the one thing God told them not to take. Of all the bounty, he said, you may eat from any tree in the garden, just not this one. The one provision, they took and they ate of the tree of the knowledge, just as the serpent intended, through deception, but also plain old disobedience. Sin entered the world. And with that, we're told, comes death. And sin and death spread to all humanity. Because in Adam, as, Roman, as Paul tells us in Romans 5, in Adam all sin. And since the time of Adam, all humanity have sinned. We're born in sin and we sin. Every one of us, that is. Except one. Except this seed of the woman. Now, I'm sure at one point or another you've been inclined to think, if I was there, I wouldn't have done that. I would have known better. But really, I wonder, how is it we go today listening to the word of God or managing, resisting the temptations of the evil one? Whose voice do we listen to and obey? I've recently finished uh, listening to the biography of Ash Barty. And near the beginning of that, she speaks about, I think it's one of her aunties, who shares with her a Cherokee Indian parable of a young boy wrestling in life, um, going through adolescence, I think, and uh, wrestling with life and his own conscience and his motives and desires and actions. And he goes to one of his elders in this wrestling. And he says, look, there's, it's like there's two wolves inside of me, always baring their teeth and always fighting against each other. And they're howling and I can hear them all the time. One wants me to do this. He wants me to do wrong. Doesn't want me to listen to my parents. He wants me to hurt others and just have my own way. But then there's this other one that says, no, that's not right. I should do what I'm told. And I want to do the right stuff. And I should be kind to people. 
And he asks the elder, which one's going to win? And after a bit of sage reflection, the elder answers the boy, the one you feed the most. Now, that's not the gospel. It's not the whole story. But it does reveal something to us, doesn't it? That all humanity is in that same dilemma. Whose voice are we going to listen to? We all wrestle with the question, which one are we going to obey? Even Paul, doesn't he, in Romans 7, the good I would, I do not do, and the evil I don't, this I do. Similar wrestle. Or when the Lord renews the covenant with his people at Moab, and Moses stands before them and declares the blessings of God and the cursings of God, and he says to them, I've put them all before you, and it's not too difficult for you. I put before you life and death, blessing and curse. The word is near you, it's in your mouth, it's in your heart. Choose life. And yet God gives his promise, renews his promise there and encourages his people knowing full well that they're going to disobey him and not choose life. That day in the garden, Adam and Eve didn't choose life. They chose to listen to another voice, a voice other than God's. Even though God had warned them, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. And so sin came into the world and with it death and with that the curse and all the consequences that it brought about. And we live in those consequences, don't we? There's now a pattern of behaviour and a pattern of humanity no longer in the fullness of what God created us to be. From that point on, a now sinful, sin-filled, broken, fallen world, subjected, we're told, to futility and enslaved to sin and the kingdom of darkness. We too, apart from the grace of God in Christ, would never choose life. It's part of what we mean when we speak of the depravity of man or humanity. It's not just referring to how bad we are or how bad we could be. That sinful depravity is actually how utterly helpless we are, not only to save ourselves, but not to sin. We're dead in our sins and transgressions. We're both unwilling and unable to choose life apart from the grace of God. But it's into that futile, fallen, broken world, into the curse of God upon all humanity and upon the world that the seed of the woman comes, Jesus. And he comes not just into a sin-filled, broken world, is it? He actually comes, God himself comes in the flesh, incarnate in Jesus. Not in luxury or comfort, looking above this sin-filled world and saying, oh, you should have done better, or I'll fix it from afar. He actually comes in to all the consequences feeling the weight, living in the wholeness, the fullness of all the curses that are dished out by God that day. Curses which include, yes, the serpent, cursed above all livestock on your belly, you're going to go, you're going to eat dust. God puts him in his place, both figuratively and literally, and one day his head would be crushed by the seed of the woman. But there's more to it, isn't there, as we read on in verse 16. The woman would have increased pain in childbearing, not just childbirth, but in the raising of children. Any parent here will know that pain. 
Ferguson and Begg speculate maybe, just maybe, when Jesus, you know, the tw- two times Jesus says to Mary, he says, woman, what has what this to do with me? And woman, when he, this is your son on the cross. Maybe Jesus is actually indicating she's the woman. She's the seed, he, he is the seed of the woman. Bit of speculation, but maybe. And there's more than just increased pain in childbearing. The Lord tells the woman your desire will be for your husband or contrary to his, depending on your version, but he will rule over you. Now we could spend a whole other series on that, couldn't we? But suffice to say, there's going to be both desire and a fierce battle for authority. The very good design and creational order of things that God has created will be questioned and thrown into disarray in our relationships, our homes, our marriages. Authority and all matters of authority are going to be sought after, they're going to be abused rather than expressed in love. And our desires will be misplaced in line now with our own selfish, sinful will rather than God's design and his kingdom of love. And then God turns to the man, because you listen to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree, the ground's now going to be cursed. It's going to produce thorns and thistles. Yes, you had to work it before, but now you're going to have to work it by the sweat of your brow if you're going to produce anything edible, fruitful from it. His pain and toil is increased as well. And that would be his lot all of the days of his life until he too returns to the ground. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And you see, Jesus, the seed of the woman, he comes and he enters into all of those consequences, doesn't he? He actually comes, God sends his son, how? Born of a woman. He comes into the world through that increased pain of childbirth. He doesn't miss any of it. He was born into and through the very curse that God declared upon the woman. Mary had to endure that. And as he grew up and set his face towards the cross, he knew the pain and the toil of the curse upon the earth and the broken, brokenness of humanity, the blood, sweat and tears that this creation now demands to the point that in the garden, remember, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground by the sweat of his brow. Even the ground needed the blood of Christ shed for it to be redeemed. As this seed, the, the grain of wheat, which is Jesus, falls to the ground and dies so that it would bear much fruit. How much suffering and pain and blood is needed for that fruit to be born? There's actually no fruit without suffering or death, is there? Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies. And Jesus didn't just come and enter into that world of curse and consequences of sin. He became curse for us. To redeem us from the curse of the law, from sin, from the evil one. So that in him, we're told, we might receive the promise and blessing of God. In this dark, depraved, fallen, we might receive God's blessing. The same blessing Adam and Eve received back in the garden. 
be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and more. We just had three weeks of those blessings, haven't we? The cursed one hanging on a tree on the cross to die for us becomes the tree of life that Adam and Eve's access was restricted. We now have access to the very fountain of life himself. Because that's another of the consequences of the fall, isn't it? Separation from the tree of life, but also just relationally. Yes, God promised them they would die that day. And eventually he says to Adam, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. But they also died as God promised on that very day. They died relationally. The very essence of life, of love and union, broken, torn apart, obscured as they hide from each other. Straight away, God doesn't even have to place that curse upon them. It's one of the what we call natural consequences of the fall. In their sin and shame and their guilt, they hide from each other. Start pointing the finger, this woman that you gave me, the serpent, he deceived me. And then they hide from God, covering themselves. Their sin, their guilt and their shame have destroyed their life together, their communion. They now live, we now live, the world lives in constant fear of judgment and disapproval and of death. That which was so good. It's almost too short, Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? Very good. With so much fruitfulness and abundant provision and blessing. Now devastated. Destroyed. Driven out of. Through deception and disobedience. Guilt and fear now determining our every action instead of love. And delight. Hiding from God and hiding from one another, we do it. And we still point the finger, looking for someone to blame. Rather than rejoicing, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, communion with God, so much goodness undone. And yet into that depravity comes the seed of the woman. Christ is born. And he bears all of it. All our griefs and all our sorrows, all our sin and all our shame, even that separation that took place in the garden when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Every bit of sin and the curse and the consequences of all of that. Christ bore it all. The seed of the woman. So that we would not have to bear it any longer. And we live in a modern age. You can look at the news on our screens. But there's nothing new or modern about the troubles and ailments of the world, is there? They're as old as Adam, as old as the ancient serpent. And yet there's new ways we express them every day. And they're as contemporary as the sin that you and I commit and wrestle with each day. Because we know too well, don't we, the brokenness and pain of this fallen world. We know the wrestle... With sin, desire, and temptation. Many of you know the pain of childbearing, that increased pain of the curse, raising our children. We know the struggles with sin and our own selfish desires. But we're not all just victims in all of this, are we? 
We're perpetrators too, the scriptures tell us, without excuse. And yet as God's people today, we wrestle with that question of how this all works out. We still wrestle with the creational order and God's design for humanity and authority and submission and love. Do we live in communion with each other or in competition? Many of you will know the painful toil of growing a garden, just working the ground to try to produce something. Unless you've got zucchinis, they tend to just go the other way and just grow. Isn't it good that God makes some things just abundantly fruitful? (laughs) But even they wither and fade and get mouldy at the end of the season, don't they? And we know the thorns and thistles of life, not just in our gardens, but in our hopes and our dreams, as things are choked and we can't do the things we'd like to do. And in all of that, we know something of the battle, the evil one, that enmity. Spiritual battle, Paul tells us, doesn't he? Not with flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. And yet it's in flesh and blood that we wrestle with them. Longing for some rest and some peace, for the war to be over. And that great chapter of Romans 8, in the middle of no condemnation and no separation, there's a whole lot of groaning. (laughs) Creation groans, we groan, even the spirit groans, as in the pains of childbirth. And we know that groaning all too well, don't we? Waiting for the redemption of our bodies. (laughs) How are the bodies going, folks? We're longing for that redemption. One day it'll be there. But Paul tells us in Romans 8 that all of that took place. God subjected creation to futility, curse, in hope. In hope. Do you know that hope? Do you cling to that hope? What hope is there? As we hear the news and hear 40,000 plus crushed after an earthquake. What hope is there for broken marriages and abused ones, orphans, chronic illness? What hope is there for sinners like you and I? Well, Paul says the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him, God, who subjected it in hope. What's the hope? In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation's waiting for that to be revealed, for us to be revealed, for all God's children to be revealed in glory. Does that get you up in the morning? Because sometimes it's pretty sad, isn't it? It's pretty hard. It's pretty. I said to someone on, was it Friday? I said, I feel like I've just been running the day like through jelly. Just nothing felt like it was easy, just hard slog. We know the groaning, don't we? But do we know the hope? And do we cling to that? Do we hold fast to it, trusting that God is the one who promised, is faithful? And what is it he's promised? In the midst of all the sin and the shame and the hiding and the deception and disobedience there in the garden, there's this great promise. The seed of the woman will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. That's one of his promises. And he's faithful to his promises. It's what we call the proto-evangelium, the first good news. 
God's got a plan from the very beginning. He is going to defeat sin. He's going to put aside, he's going to destroy the evil one. Why did Jesus come? Save us from our sin? Yes. To reveal the Father to us? Yes. And John tells us the Son of God appeared. Why? To destroy the works of the devil. That's a pretty wonderful hope to have, isn't it? To destroy the works, all of them. No more temptation, no more sin, no more evil powers to wrestle with. No more the good I would, I do not do, and the evil I don't, this I do. All of that's included in that, but it's also more. I think when the seed of the woman comes and he destroys the works of the devil, he came to undo everything that's involved in Genesis 3. To demolish the kingdom of darkness. And if I can put it this way, to destroy all the damage done through his deceptive ways and the sin that's come into the world. It would be one thing, wouldn't it, to stop the invasion of Russia in Ukraine at the moment, to put an end to the war. But what about the clean-up? How long is that going to take? What about the rebuilding of a people, of an infrastructure of life and hope again? That's another whole thing altogether, isn't it? Removing one leader or even a whole army wouldn't restore the Ukraine. So much more to do. And yet Jesus has come, this seed of the woman, and he's come to destroy the works of the devil, not just defeat him, but actually to rebuild and establish and restore everything, not just to its former glory, but to something even better, to its ultimate goal. Heard a bit about that last week too. You to unite everything in Christ. Christ hasn't come just to finish off the serpent. He does that, absolutely. But he also comes to destroy all the damage the servant has managed to afflict upon humanity and creation and communion, our communion with God and with one another. He's come to restore it to its former glory and more, to bring us into full communion with God and with one another. That's the hope we have in Christ. That's the joy set before Jesus as he endured the cross and despised the shame. But it doesn't come without a battle, does it? And we could trace all the way through Scripture from Cain and Abel as the first battle. Is Abel, this woman, the the seed of the woman? So the evil one comes and Cain's there, sin's waiting at his door. Knock off this one and all of a sudden God's plant. And every generation there's this threat. Who's the seed of the woman? Who's the seed of the woman? Jesus is born. What does Herod do? That's the evil one at work through the principalities and powers, but through flesh and blood, humanity, trying to knock off the seed of the woman. And we see that depicted in Revelation with the woman and the beast and the dragon. and Then he's set amongst the earth to make war with, his, with her offspring. We could go through all of that in more detail. But we do need to come to an end. The seed of the woman has come. And on the cross, what did he cry out? It is finished. He's done it. It's done. And yet God's kingdom is not yet fully consummated, is it? 
There is a now and a not yet. We live still in the wrestling and the groaning, but we still we actually live in the victory of Christ. Not in a triumphalism, but by faith in the victory of Christ. We don't see it all by sight. The end of evil, the end of the evil one, he's been decisively defeated. His end, it's inevitable. And he's even already disarmed and been put to open shame. But like a wounded bull, he doesn't go down without a fight. But we live today in the sure hope of that victory of Christ and his ultimate destruction. Even as we groan, and I think Paul chose his words and his metaphor carefully, didn't he? Groaning as in the pains of childbirth. The seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. And as we live in the sure victory of Christ, as I said, ours is not to be a triumphant triumphalism today. That's not what marks our lives. Instead, we stand firm in Christ. We're not to fight fire with fire. Ours are not the weapons of the world. We wear the whole armour of God. Salvation, righteousness, things of faith and hope and love, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. It's at those things the evil one flees. They're the ways of God, our Father. That's how the seed of the woman lived and how he conquered the evil one, in love, sacrificial love. And so it's also the same way as the children of God, the offspring of Abraham, we're told, as we share in his faith. Do you know, we are are so joined to Christ, united in him by the Spirit, that Paul can say in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We participate in the victory as we participate in the war, the clash. But not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. It's only in Christ that we're more than conquerors. And what's the victory that's overcome the world? It's our faith. Faith in the one who has victory over all sin and evil. Let me read you just from the final chapter of Ferguson and Big. A little poetic end. Recall that Adam was created to be the gardener. Everything God made was good, but everything was not yet garden. Some of us have heard he wanted Adam to Edenize the earth. God wanted Adam to exercise his dominion by expanding the garden. Having given him a garden to begin with, God was saying, now Adam, I've given you a start, just as we might say to our children, here's a start, now you go and do the rest. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Adam was to garden the whole earth for the glory of the Heavenly Father, but he failed. Created to make the dust fruitful, he himself became part of the dust. His dwelling place, the Garden of Eden, became the wilderness of this world. But do you also remember how John's Gospel records what happened on the morning of Jesus' resurrection? He was the beginning of the new creation, the firstborn from the dead, 
But Mary Magdalene did not recognize him. Instead, she spoke to him, supposing him to be the gardener. Who else would he be at this time of the morning? The gardener? Yes, indeed, he is the gardener. He is the second man, the last Adam, who is now beginning to restore the garden. Later that day, Jesus showed his disciples where the nails and the spear had drawn blood from his hands and his side. The serpent had indeed crushed his heel, but he had crushed the serpent's head. Now he was planning to turn the wilderness back into a garden. Soon he would send his disciples into the world with the good news of his victory. All authority on earth, lost by Adam, now regained. In the closing scenes of the book of Revelation, John saw the new earth coming down from heaven. What did it look like? It looked like a garden in which the tree of life stands. One day, all of this will come to pass. Let's pray. Father God, we do know the groanings of creation of our own hearts and you tell us your spirit groans uh, with groanings too deep for words. And yet in that groaning you are doing something. In that groaning there is hope, there is purpose. As we all together with creation long for and look to the revealing of the children of God, the glory of the children of God. What a day that will be as we sing. And Father, until that day, we ask, as we've heard this morning, that we would hear your promises, <coughs> that we would know you are faithful to all that you've promised, and that in Christ Jesus, this seed of the woman, your son, all your promises are yes and amen. And so, Father, we pray that you would restore us in hope. You would reveal to us the great riches of that hope. And grant to us, Father, the endurance and patience we need in these days with joy. As we look to and long for Christ to appear again, where we will see what we now know by faith, the works of the devil destroyed and the sons and daughters of God revealed. and standing in glory together with Christ. In him we pray. Amen.